you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at LAist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Hope your day's off to a strong start. We've got a lot to talk about today, including James Cameron, uh, the new Avatar sequel, The Way of Water. We'll be with our John Horn coming up next hour right here on KPCC. And we're going to begin by focusing on the L.A. County Board of Supervisors voting yesterday to extend an eviction moratorium through the end of January. That brings the county of Los Angeles uh, into the same time frame as the city of Los Angeles. But uh, we've been hearing a great deal from landlords who are couples who own second properties, who use uh, some of their rentals as as income properties who have been very hard hit by the moratorium and very concerned about its extension. Needless to say, there are renters for whom they would be out in the cold, literally, were they not able to stay where they are with these protections. I'd like to hear from AirTalk listeners your thoughts about the supervisors extending the moratorium. What does it mean for you, either as a renter or a property owner? We're at 866-893-KPCC or email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Joining us is KPCC LAist housing reporter David Wagner. David, good morning. Uh, share with us the thought behind why the county supervisors extended the moratorium by one month. Right. Good to be here, Larry. So they voted on this because these eviction safeguards were set to expire um, after December 31st. So the clock was really ticking uh, for the end of these county rules. They uh, decided to push this back by one month to January 31st, um, in part to align with the city of L.A.'s tentative plans to phase out eviction protections at that time. Um, there were some other reasons given to uh, Supervisor Holly Mitchell proposed this extension, and she said, you know, there's what she calls a respiratory illness trifecta going on in the county right now. We've got COVID, RSV, seasonal flu spreading. So she just felt this was not the right time to get rid of these rules. Other supervisors had different reasons for voting for it. Um, but the the headline is, yeah, this deadline is getting pushed back by one month. Do we know at this point how many uh, Angelinos are behind on their rent? So there have been um, different ways of getting at that. One uh, statistic that I've been looking at throughout the pandemic is uh, U.S. Census survey data. And the most recent data that I saw on that showed that about 11% of L.A. tenant households say that they are behind on rent. So, you know, we've heard that tens of thousands of people could be vulnerable to eviction once these protections lift. You know, one of the things I'm wondering is, you know, with the extension of this, the potential for there to be a recession, is this the eviction moratorium that just won't end? Because, um 
economically, you know, we're looking at a high rate of employment now. Uh, wages have gone up and they've, they've gone up actually higher percentage wise for lower income earners. Now, of course, it's incredibly expensive to live in Southern California. So we know the struggles that lower wage earners have in affording rent, but uh, nonetheless, just looking at where we are economically compared to where we may be in the months to come, David, um, you know, this, this people may be better off economically now than they're going to be. Well, well, the, the question may be, you know, if we're not going to get rid of these um temporary COVID eviction protections now, then when are we? You know, and if that's the question, um, you know, landlords have long been saying that the county should rescind these eviction rules. They've argued that, as you just said, businesses have been reopened, jobs have returned, you know, COVID vaccines are widely available. Um, the argument for keeping the eviction protections, though, whether you're talking about the perspective of county supervisors or um, tenant uh, advocates, is that, you know, we still have tens of thousands of people who are behind on rent. Many of them could face eviction once these protections expire. Um, and homelessness experts really have credited these rules for the lower than expected rise in homelessness LA County saw during the pandemic. You know, this year, LA County reported a 4.1% increase in homelessness. Um, researchers say that number would have been a lot higher if tenants were not protected um, from evictions and rent hikes. Um, so, Supervisors argued that this one month extension gives them more time to formulate a plan for, you know, informing everybody about how the rules are expiring, what the new rules will be once we go back to quote unquote normal. Um, that's the argument that we heard for keeping these eviction rules in place for another month. We're talking with KPCC, LAist housing reporter David Wagner again. I'd like to hear from AirTalk listeners what you think of county supervisors extending the eviction moratorium by a month through the end of January, uh, setting the same time frame as the city of Los Angeles. We're at 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. You can also email us at comments at kpcc.com. Kuya in Venice says, I'm a small landlord. Our tenants applied for the COVID relief program and haven't seen any money from that. I contacted my mortgage company because our unit isn't owner occupied. We don't qualify for relief from them. That's Kuya in Venice. Joining us, staff attorney at the Legal Aid Foundation for Los Angeles, Jonathan Yeager. Jonathan, thank you very much for, for being with us. Um, when do you think realistically the moratorium could end? Well, I think the supervisors made it pretty clear yesterday that they their goal is to encourage cities to adopt their own permanent protections, whatever protections make sense in that city. That has always been the goal and made it clear that when the Department of Consumer and Business Affairs released its initial report and plan to wind down, there was a phase planned phase three that would have gone through June of this year in order to give county time to develop uh, model policies and provide technical assistance to those cities. And so I think what the county supervisors did yesterday was really provide an off-ramp and ensure that there's no gap in protections. But the the county's rules would still apply to the unincorporated areas, correct? Um, Only through the duration of the moratorium. 
Right. But I mean, so if if the county actually ends the moratorium at the end of January, then there wouldn't be anything, at least as as currently constituted, to take the place of that in unincorporated county areas, would there? Well, the county has its own set of permanent uh tenant protections that apply in unincorporated areas. But th- but those have been ongoing, and, and cities have similar kinds of things, correct? Yes. Um, and the, the real benefit of the county's emergency protections um, countywide has been giving tenants in cities where there were previously no or very little protections um, this lifeline to make sure that they weren't displaced because of COVID, they weren't displaced because of, you know, uh, any other reasons. We're talking with Jonathan Yeager, staff attorney, the Legal Aid Foundation of L.A., also with us, executive director of the Apartment Association of Greater L.A., Dan Yukelson. Dan, thank you for being with us. What do your members think of this extension? Well, it's been an unfortunate and very tough three years for our members who've been challenged to collect rent that's owed to them. And also not have the ability to increase rent during what's been an unprecedented inflationary period. Our owners are not keeping up with their expenses. They're having to defer maintenance and they're not collecting rent at the same time. And, you know, what you have to realize, Larry, is these protections, these eviction protections were put in place for people impacted by COVID. And if tenants haven't been impacted by COVID, these protections really aren't applicable. And if they have can prove that they were impacted by COVID, they're not going to be evicted. State law is clear about that. These become consumer debts and people cannot be evicted for it. So, uh, you know, this has just gone on way, way too long. People are losing their properties. People are unable to afford their daily living expenses because they've been supporting tenants where the government should have been providing rental support so people can stay housed. Julio in, uh, I'm sorry, Julio in Downey says, I'm a tenant behind on rent by $16,000. I applied for relief a year and four months ago and still waiting for a check, so I support the extension. Paul in Glendale, you're on Air Talk. Hi, my wife is in property management and she's seen a number of abuses since the moratorium started. She's had tenants that, that basically stopped paying rent then sublet their apartment to somebody and moved out and they're collecting that rent and there's nothing they can do about the initial people that are abusing the system. She has a number of tenants that are behind sixty, seventy thousand dollars in rent and the owners will never see that. And there's a lot of talk on the tenants end, but not all these owners are wealthy owners and some of them depend on the rent coming in and there hasn't really been concessions made to provide help to the owners as much as there has to the tenants. Well, you know, the tenants are a significant block of voters and the mom and pop property owners are a much smaller group. So, Paul, you know, what what sort of efforts are being made for those mom and pop property owners to try and make their their political case? Well, I mean, there's there's um, some concessions that are being made where there's uh, like programs to provide some of the back rent. But in most cases, it's a buyout situation. Somebody will owe 60 or 70 and they'll settle on getting 30 back from them because they realize they won't see anything. And so then the owner's still out 30 or 40 that they're owed and there isn't much to do about it. All right, Paul, thank you very much. Lisa in Sherman Oaks, good to have you with us on AirTalk. What do you think of the extension? 
Hi, Larry. My family owns a home in Woodland Hills, and they have a tenant that has not paid rent in over six months. My children are forced to live in an apartment and pay rent. My daughter-in-law has an invalid mother who is in an assisted facility right down the street from where their home is. They need to get this woman out. Is there any chance that the moratorium is going to be extended past January 31st? They have contacted an attorney. We're so stuck. It's so frustrating. Yeah, David Wagner, um, in, in any sense of, of you know, what, what the plans are to potentially extend this uh, past the end of January? Well, there was an amendment put forward by Supervisor Hilda Solis um, that did pass, and that amendment called for a report back on the possibility of extending the eviction protections by six months all the way through June 30th. Now, that plan would also be contingent on setting up a $5 million relief program for small landlords in L.A. County. Um, again, that's just a report back. That's not a done deal. We'll see what happens with that in uh, the weeks to come. $5 million for the whole county? Wow. That's yeah, and, and that <laughs> That's is not and much. that is not and of course that is not gonna be enough. I you know, the um uh the county staff made that clear. That's not gonna be enough. I, I will say, um, you know, it should be noted that two point five billion dollars in rent relief was paid to LA County uh households behind on rent earlier in the pandemic. Now the state's rent relief program has since shut down, but you know, over half of the state's rent relief dollars have gone to L.A. County alone, and those dollars um, went to make landlords whole. Well, let me bring back into the conversation from the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, Attorney Jonathan Yeager. Um, Jonathan, um, you know, I, I understand you're representing the the renters in this, but you know your your thoughts about um, whether this has been equitable for the small property owners who haven't been receiving rent. People like Lisa, our caller in Sherman Oaks, and have little recourse. Yeah, I think we welcome that amendment that um, David talked and you talked about regarding the relief for landlords and, you know, generally don't think that that this whole issue needs to be, uh, you know, a fight between landlords and tenants. Tenants uh, are, you know, it's important to understand that tenants are continuing to struggle. People are still impacted by COVID. The latest um you know, numbers statewide is that there's people are three billion dollars behind on rent. And so despite the, you know, outward economic indicators, people are continuing to still struggle. And these protections are particularly important because it's not just about rent. There are also protections against eviction for other reasons. Um, Most importantly, uh, people who moved in pets and family members during the pandemic um, because of other forces, people rearranging family living situations in order for first responders to safely, you know, work in our hospitals. Um, and those living situations are kind of at risk uh, if these protections go away. Adam in Ontario says, I'm a mom and pop landlord. I have a tenant who hasn't paid in over six months. I've contacted attorneys, but there isn't anything I can do. I'm now in default on my mortgage. At this moment, it looks like I'll lose my property. That's Adam in Ontario. I want to, oh, here's Maritza in Island Park. I'm completely against the moratorium for small landlords. I can't raise the rent enough to 
um, make my own money. These companies that have huge complexes with 30 or 40 units can afford to keep this going. I can't. That's Maritzka uh, in uh, Highland Park. I want to thank you for your comments. My thanks to Dan Eukelson of the Apartment Association of Greater L.A., Jonathan Yeager of the Legal Aid Foundation of Los Angeles, and our own David Wagner, KPECC, LAist housing reporter. Coming up, we're going to be taking a look at L.A. Mayor Karen Bass's new short-term housing program, uh, Inside Safe. We'll talk about the shelters, the hotel and motel rooms that she's planning for people who are currently living on the streets. We'll talk with Amy Turk of the Downtown Women's Center and Pete White of the L.A. Community Action Network when we come back in just one minute. Coming up later this hour on Air Talk, we remember the Olympic Auditorium, wonderful historic venue in downtown Los Angeles. It's now a church, but for its decades uh, of, of life as a sports center, uh, wrestling, boxing, even roller derby made their home at the Olympic Auditorium. There's a documentary which is showing on Spectrum Sportsnet, and we'll be talking with the director of that film, playing some clips from the history of the Olympic Auditorium. Uh, I saw one of the uh, later boxing events that were there, uh, Zach Padilla, his final fight, a very gifted young fighter who had to retire for medical reasons. Uh, Just a terrific venue with a lot of history. We'll talk about the Olympic coming up a little bit later. But right now, we turn our attention to L.A. Mayor Karen Bass's new Inside Safe program that she told us about her very first day as mayor of Los Angeles. Today, it begins its implementation. We wanted to talk about the plans for providing shelter for people using motel and hotel rooms and other places to provide a safe space for people currently living on the streets or in encampments. Joining us is Amy Turk, the CEO of the Downtown Women's Center, and Pete White, Executive Director of the LA Community Action Network. Pete and Amy, good to have you both with us. Uh, Amy, thanks for joining us. Uh, just, you know, first of all, what are you hopeful that this program might provide? Of course, I want it to end homelessness. Uh, we need more resources to do so, and I'm hoping this is a layer over of what we're already accomplishing and just giving more to our to people who need it the most and can this build on project room key that we saw you know at the height of the pandemic to move many people off the streets that's what it seems like it is uh downtown women's center most recently started an initiative called the every woman housed action plan and that was building off what we learned when we administered project room key and so in the skid row community we've increased outreach teams that are working with women we reopened the hotel that we operated project room key in and we're housing more women than ever before yeah one of the challenges i know and and we hear this from people who work with uh unhoused angelinos is um you know for a certain subset of people that there's real resistance uh to 
moving off of the street. And um, the mayor has said this is going to be a voluntary program. They're not going to force people off of the streets. You know, what's your sense if the units are available, if there's capacity of of how much this could contribute to getting people off the streets? We're really pleased to hear Mayor Bass say that this is a voluntary program because we know that criminalization is one of the reasons that we have so many people experiencing homelessness in the first place. And that when you do it in a trauma-informed approach where you really partner with people experiencing homelessness and you offer them something that's dignified, like a room on their own in a motel, we find that people are more likely to say yes. Now, one of the the challenges if, if you have people who are actively using drugs and are addicted or are dealing with untreated severe mental illness that can create challenges it it can also make it difficult for neighbors of those locations to have buy-in on the facilities because they're having to deal with all the quality of life issues that are raised by people who are in in serious distress so um if if there aren't going to be requirements for people to get into drug treatment or to um, have uh, psychological services, um, what are your thoughts about the ability to sustain this against what are almost certain to be neighborhood protests? What's important is that we partner with community-based organizations that have expertise in addressing people's mental health concerns and substance use addictions. And What I hear from Mayor Bass is that she understands that those supportive services are necessary. You can't just put someone in a hotel and without the supports that are needed. We don't have, of course, enough drug treatment programs, nor enough mental health um, employees. That's something we've covered on this program. There's a shortage. That work is very, very difficult. And and, um, there are other ways to use one's advanced degree in mental health services less stressful than working with the unhoused population. So... um, in a perfect world, all those services would be available. We don't live in that world. So what's going to happen? We do need to take a realistic approach here so that we're successful, that we're giving people opportunities to thrive and move into permanent housing. What I find most effective in our outreach teams in particular is hiring peer specialists. People who have lived through homelessness themselves are really effective in this work. Uh, and that's where we're focused on, given the shortage of social, you know, licensed social workers and such. Love to hear from Air Talk listeners your thoughts about this, Mayor Karen Bass, in about half an hour, uh, publicly unveiling Inside Safe, her new program to try and provide immediate uh, short-term housing for people who are currently living on the street. It is a voluntary program, but they're working on obtaining rooms uh, and places where people can go to be safe, to be off the streets. We're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at kpecc.org. Please include your first name and your location. If you're someone who is on the street or living in your car, perhaps you're in an encampment, I'd be interested to hear from you what you would find acceptable in the way of an offering, uh, particularly if you're in the city of L.A., um, what what would make you willing to leave your current circumstance to go into a different short-term shelter 
Environment, 866-893-KPCC, or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. We always get terrific calls from people who are either living in an encampment or uh, living in their cars or couch surfing or other things um, and and dealing with uh, not having a, a ongoing place to live. Pete White, Executive Director of the LA Community Action Network. Pete, thank you for being with us. Realistically, uh, what sort of, of progress do you see this program making? I mean, I think uh, I think a couple of things, Larry. I thank you guys for having me this morning. Um, so we're definitely looking at uh, Inside Safe as an extension of some of the things that we saw in Project Room Key and Project Home Key, right? Um, bringing people inside, purchasing uh, hotels and motels um, if they're available, but it's also doing other things, right? In- Inside Safe is also talking about using publicly owned land uh, and buildings uh, and to convert those into housing for houseless folks, looking at new modular designs like LA Cans Eco Hoods and, and a few other um, designs. And and fundamentally, I think Inside Safe has an opportunity to shift the culture, right? To, uh, to shift the culture in City Hall to uh, from a culture of maybe we can to, of course, we can, right? Um, I think just answering really quickly uh, one of the other questions you posed, I think, I think your listeners also have to be reminded that um, Lhasa, not too long ago, came out and talked about the three drivers of houselessness. Those three drivers are housing availability, housing affordability, and poverty, right? And so while a third, right, of those who are houseless are suffering with uh, mental health and substance abuse issues, and we can't, we can't affirmatively say that's why they're houseless, we do know that there's a larger 70% that if housed, if given options of housing and, and, and you know, allowed to stay in their house, uh, in their homes, that we would be okay. And I think inside uh, safe begins to be this expression of closing the tap. The tap Pete, do you think that 70% is still accurate given the tremendous rise that we have seen in addiction with methamphetamine and with fentanyl? I mean, that's a statistic that's been used for years now. You really think that's still accurate? So I think, I, I think it's still accurate. I, I, also, I also believe not only do I think it's accurate, I think that we have to get a better handle when we talk about houselessness and who's houseless and who's not. I think oftentimes most Angelinos, we're like the, the crux of the problem are just the houseless people that we see. I, we oftentimes forget about those folks who are couch surfing. We forget about those folks who are temporarily housed. And so the, you know, for long. That's a good point. So you're including those in that figure and, and that is the less visible part of homelessness. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, we're still, Larry, we're still nervous about when all of the, when all of the protections from COVID go away. We're nervous about at a low, those 360,000 families who could be at risk for houselessness if they cannot pay their rent, right? And so we have to, we have to include those numbers in the conversation. Right. And inside safe, I believe inside safe begins to be an expression. I mean, some of the other things that Inside Safe is lifting um, are the elements of ULA, United to House LA, where there's a specific focus on um, um, keeping people housed with rent payments, right? And so things that that probably kept the numbers uh, particularly low during COVID. And so 
we have to if we're talking about uh, landing this plane and really moving uh, moving towards an exit out of houselessness. All of these things together, and let me say, yeah. all of these the- things together to me are an expression of work that has been happening on the ground for quite some time. Pete, you've been in this for so long, and you know, you know with the Section 8 vouchers, that's been challenging to get uh, landlords to accept those in many cases. If you have what essentially, and it sounds like you're describing a local program that's essentially like Section 8 vouchers or, or rent assistance, are you concerned that there's still going to be, particularly in a tight housing market, a reluctance of property owners to take people getting that assistance? It's interesting. Um, Loyola Marymount just did an exit survey on the United to House Los Angeles as the millionaire's tax, right? And what we're seeing from the results of that survey are Angelinos are now saying that they are willing to put a shelter or housing within a mile of their residence. That's that's brand new, right? They're also willing to do 50% of those who were surveyed were willing to do ADUs uh, in, you know, behind their homes for this this reason and a lot of people are like why are angelinos now um so receptive right like where's that nimbyism going it's going it's leaving us because the other number that we saw in the ula study was 50 percent of those who were renters in that study had struggled paying rent in the last 12 months 50 percent of um asians 52% 52% of Latinos, 53% of um, white folks, and 63% African Americans. And so what we're seeing, Larry, is proximity to the issue is shifting. Right now, okay. it's not the other. It's not just the person you drove by. It's someone it, that you know. Yeah, but it is important so now, to mention, Pete, also, that this this is from surveys, and people often respond in ways that they think um, are, are going to portray them in a positive light. So I know that that is a shift in what people are saying. Um, what will be fascinating to see if people actually walk that walk. Again, we're at 866-893-KPECC. Aaron in Los Angeles says there has to be more done about drug addiction and psychological treatment to help those living on the streets rather than just housing them in hotel rooms. Allison in Laguna Hill says, I believe everyone deserves a second chance, but I don't agree with people uh, being on the streets voluntarily. We can't give people a choice to stay on the street. We must provide mandatory treatment for drugs and mental illness. That is Allison in Laguna Hills. Again, we're at 866-893-KPEC. Amy, you mentioned earlier about efforts to provide a sort of peer mentorship or or support people who have previously lived the experience of people who are now in distress. And um, you know, what sort of training do those individuals get? How do you prepare? I mean, it's, it, it's terrific that they have the commonality, but I assume there's also things they really have to be prepared to deal with. As do all of us in this field, uh, we provide training at Downtown Women's Center to our peer specialists, as does the county and some of our community partners, um, really honing the skills that they bring and helping train on things like boundaries and mental health symptoms through a more clinical lens and, and such. Uh, I'm thinking of Adeline, who works for Downtown Women's Center. She trains me. 
every day. So she doesn't actually need that much training. She's so good at the work that she does. Yeah, I'm sure some of your people are just so sharp and mm-hmm. have have a terrific intuitive sense and so much experience they can bring. But others, you know, dealing with challenges maybe they haven't experienced for the times when they were unhoused and, and to know what referrals and, and whatnot. Um, so with this program, uh, the mayor's very ambitious with what she wants to see with the numbers of, of people. Um, and you know, what are the challenges in procuring even that many rooms, particularly with tourism starting to rebound? It's the money. It's not necessarily cheap, though, of course, homelessness in and of itself is expensive when people are left homeless. Uh, so, you know, making sure that we have the resources and that we're not um, taking from run one resource to start a new resource, that we're keeping it all going. All right. Uh, and uh, just real quickly before I close with you, Pete, um, you recall when then Mayor Tom Bradley back in 86 declared an emergency over homelessness. Um, we obviously are, you know, 35 some years later now. But um, what was effective about that? I think what was effective about the Mayor uh, Bradley um, declaration on homelessness or a state of emergency is that it it drew attention to the issue. You know, Mayor Tom Bradley opened City Hall chambers and said houseless people can come inside, right? We are not going to shun houseless people. From there, we then uh, created the Winter Shelter Program, and then from there uh, was created the the year-long shelter program. And so, to me, this is the second time that the city of Los Angeles has called a state of emergency uh, and our ambitions now are greater than sheltering folks in city hall chambers. It's doing the things that we need to do, um, protecting people's rents, um, modular designs like eco hoods, and, and and making sure that we are going down a path of housing and not criminalization, housing and services and humanity and dignity, and not trying to criminalize our way out of this problem. Um, will it will it solve the crisis tomorrow? No, but. Does it have the ability to create a culture outside of the state of emergency that makes Los Angeles move? The answer to that is yes. All right. I want to thank you very much for being with us. That's Pete White, Executive Director of the L.A. Community Action Network. And my thanks to Amy Turk, the CEO of the Downtown Women's Center. Thanks very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Uh, Heather in Glendale says, having worked with unhoused people in Southern California, I think there needs to be mandatory one-year treatment for drug users. It takes a long time for the brain to heal itself from chronic addiction. Otherwise, It's just catch and release. That's Heather in Glendale. Uh, We thank you so much. Coming up, we remember the Olympic Auditorium. Oh, the building's still there. It's a church. But it's glory days as a site of athletic competition. What we're going to talk about, a brand new documentary, 18th and Grand, is uh, being shown on television. We'll talk with the director when we come back in 90 seconds. Talk on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. 
When the Olympic Auditorium in downtown L.A. opened in 1925, it's designed to be the crown jewel of fight palaces, cutting-edge competitor to New York's Madison Square Garden. Within a year of opening, the venue fell on hard financial times. But then in 1932, with the Olympics, of course, it came uh, to prominence in Los Angeles. And then uh, in the early 1940s, with the L.A. Athletic Club owning the Olympic, Eileen Eaton, uh, who worked for the Athletic Club, uh, took a look at why the auditorium, why the arena wasn't really working. And she brought tremendous change and was a true pioneer uh, in uh, promoting of sports, particularly boxing, wrestling, later roller derby. A a new documentary uh, that is being seen right now on uh, Spectrum Sportsnet, 18th and Grand, tells about the history of the Olympic Auditorium. Auditorium. Uh, in this uh, excerpt, we hear former matchmaker Don Chargan explaining how Eileen Eaton got into boxing completely by accident. She lost her first husband in a drowning accident. She had two young sons, and she had to work. That's how she ended up working at the LA Athletic Club. The Olympic was one of their properties. Frank Garba, the head of the L.A. Athletic Club, sent her down. He said, Eileen, wants you to go to the Olympic and see if you can get an inkling of what's going wrong down there. She had never been to a fight, never had seen a fight. A day later, she called him up and says, I guess there's something wrong. They're stealing you blind. You found that out in a day and a half? And she says, yes, I did. It's good. Stay there. It's your baby. And little did they know what was going to happen with the operation of the Olympic Auditorium. It really took off when Eaton brought in boxing matchmaker Don Chargan, known as War a Week Chargan. The two decided to put on weekly matches. Question, how would they fill the seats? Uh, you'll hear Chargan in, first in this clip, as well as from Eileen Eaton in an archived interview. The fights had to be good. They had to be contests. When our paying customers walked out of the place, they'd be saying, boy, we saw a heck of a fight tonight. Boxing on television every Thursday night had the largest rating of any locally produced show in Los Angeles. Don is very fussy about seeing that his fighters come to fight. Uh, A lot of people like to see knockouts. A lot of people like to see just boxers. I just like to see a good fight. Eileen Eaton in the 1960s and 70s was not one of the most powerful promoters in the United States. She was the most powerful. This woman was putting on a program 50 Thursdays a year on television, building fighters from scratch, making them champions. We're talking about the history of the Olympic Auditorium. Steve Dubrow, the director of 18th and Grand, the Olympic Auditorium story. Steve, uh, it's just hard to believe this story really has not been told before your documentary. It's remarkable. It was uh, it was hard for me to believe, too. Uh, it was such a fascinating story on so many different levels, from an L.A. history level, because the Olympic touched upon, as you say, going back to the 1920s and how it was built and the shenanigans that were going on around how it was built and who built it. Uh, and then Eileen's story, which was 
you know, I was I was just amazed that someone who had such a important part of not just L.A. sports history, but L.A. history was so forgotten. Um, it, it felt like a story that absolutely had to be told. Well, and I, I knew a bit about her story and about her sons, you know, working for in the family business. We just lost uh, Jean LaBelle uh, just, uh, gosh, a few weeks ago. Um, great stuntman, consultant on films, actor, uh, her son, who was a big part of the, the business as well. But um, the the uh, the fact that she hadn't even seen a boxing match, when I just had sort of assumed she'd come up in athletics and knew the business i had no idea that she learned this all from nothing no she was a she was a sharp cookie um she had uh she was married previously uh that's how the name labelle got into the mix i mean she was eileen labelle uh and jean you know she had her husband had was a uh, was was one of the first celebrity sort of fat doctors in the thirties, like with heavy ladies and uh, had them on diet pills and all sorts of things. And she was really running that business. She was a natural born hustler entrepreneur. And she had an opportunity when Frank Garbett saw some of the work that she had done for the LA athletic club. He was impressed. And had, the Olympic had been through this series of failed promoters Um and I think throwing up his hands and seeing her smarts, he was like, why not give her a chance? And she grabbed it and then fell in love with the game. And it suited so many of her talents. She was um, smart financially uh, and understood and kept her eyes on the bottom line. But she was a great promoter. And that's why Richmond 95171 is stuck in our brains. I remember from the Spanish language broadcast, too. That number is is, is seared into my brain, Richmond 95171. Because you have to realize that these telecasts on local television um, were huge ratings getters. These fights that Don Chargan was making each week, the roller derby telecasts, uh, on Channel 5 and other local stations over the years, uh, wrestling the local circuit that was that was run out of the Olympic Auditorium uh, with people like Freddie Blassie and John Tolos and all these other uh, local uh, wrestlers of note. Um, this, this was Miel Mascaras. This was a huge uh, center for all of this activity, and it had a big cultural effect on L.A. So with that in mind, I want to hear from you. If you have memories of the Olympic Auditorium, what it was like for you. My father-in-law tells me great stories of all the photos of all the champions up on the walls. I only went once to see Zach Padilla's last fight. That was, I think, in 94, before he retired for health reasons at the Olympic. But I'd like to hear your memories. Um, the history, you could smell it in that building. 866-893-KPCC. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. We'll continue. Remembering the Olympic Auditorium, the building's still there. It's a church. It hasn't hosted athletic competition in, in many years. But we're talking about when it was one of the prime places for action sports in Los Angeles. We'll be back with Steve Dubrow of 18th and Grand, the Olympic Auditorium story, in just a minute.
The last scheduled TV showing of the documentary we're discussing, 18th and Grand, the Olympic Auditorium uh, story, is uh, going to be on Spectrum Sportsnet Saturday at 6 o'clock. But the documentary is also available on Blu-ray. We're asking if you have memories of the Olympic in its sports heyday to share them with us. We're at 866-893-KPCC. Um, Matt D'Angelo Antonio, our senior producer, Having not grown up here, wasn't at all familiar with with the Olympic, and uh, he particularly appreciated how Elena Eaton was such a champion of Mexican American fighters, and uh, featured them because she knew the community would really come out and support them. She understood her audience and respected her audience, and she knew that from the beginning of the, or at least the very near the beginning of the Olympic, a large portion of the audience was Mexican-American and Mexican fans who came across the border, too, and fighters from Mexico. So it mattered a lot, and uh, in fact, we're doing a, a museum exhibition at La Plaza de Cultura y Artes next summer that will celebrate uh, the Olympics history, too. So this will go on. That's great. Mike Lynn Torrance, please share with us your memories of the Olympic. I have so many memories of the Olympic. I went there the very first time 61 years ago with my father. Oh, that's great. And we'd go to the boxing matches, and on occasion we'd go to the wrestling matches. Uh, I remember watching, oh, goodness, uh, Hedgemon Lewis. Yeah. Jesus Pimentel uh, do it in boxing and then Bobo Brazil and Freddie Blassie and the Destroyer and and Gene LaBelle was actually the hangman from Parts Unknown. How funny. (laughs) And later on, he'd be refereeing some of those wrestling matches. Michael, thanks so much. I appreciate it. Let's talk with Sally in Studio City. Sally, your memories of the Olympic. Hi, Larry. I I just had to share this story with you. When I was in high school in my junior year, this is 1956, my boyfriend, who was in his senior year, somehow got connected with the selling, the marketing of pictures of the wrestlers and the programs. And he thought he would make more money if he took an assistant along. So I used to go down I guess it must have been Friday nights, and I'd have to walk through the crowded, burly guys watching the wrestling there, smoking their cigars and drinking, shouting out, pictures of the wrestlers here, get your pictures of them. And I was 16 years old, and I was scared to death, but I will never forget those years at the Olympic Auditorium. Wow. Sally, I appreciate it very much. In Studio City, 866-893-KPCC. Ben and Redondo Beats said, I started going to the Olympic in the late 60s. I was there all the time, saw so many great fights there, including up-and-comers who became world champions. Again, huge uh, sports impact of the Olympic Auditorium and those telecasts. And uh, Jim Healy, who had a very popular radio sports commentary program uh, that many of us faithfully live to he did the blow by blow on many of those telecast fights yes he did yes he did i mean they had a great group of announcers throughout its history i mean then in terms of in the ring announcers they had uh, uh jimmy lennon uh senior and yeah. later jimmy lennon jr um and then of course on on 
radio and television, Dick Lane. Uh, who Whoa, was Nelly. Whoa, Nelly. <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, and so many great... Dick, Dick Enberg got his start there, who's in our film as well. So we were fortunate enough to, to have amazing voices in, in, in this movie. All right, 866-893-KPCC. Uh, again, you also point out how there were these glory periods when Eileen Eaton had it. But for the rest of the time, it was really a struggling venue. And and what at the end for her made it difficult for her to compete? What was what was the challenge in her last years of running it? I mean, I think mostly it was ill health. And I think, you know, on a on the boxing side, they were still doing okay. Um it was wrestling and, you know, wrestling at that time and roller derby to a large extent had kind of uh, I wouldn't say run out of storylines, but run out of creative people to make the matches and 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 wrestling and roller derby. Really, both of them needed uh, they need a dynamic dynamic programming and dynamic thinking behind them. And Eileen had really moved on just to boxing, and so you know Mike LaBelle didn't care as much about wrestling, and roller derby was kind of you know waning as well yeah, so. become become passe but we'll never forget ralphie valaderas and big john hall and was it shirley hardeman i'm trying to think of all the the other people that were huge stars of roller derby psycho ronnie rains ronnie rains of yes. course skinny oh, yeah. mini miller um uh, yeah <laughs> they're great ronnie characters rains. great scares great skaters and incredible show people all right. We're remembering the Olympic Auditorium. And again, we're with the director of the documentary, 18th and Grand, the Olympic Auditorium story. Its final airing on Spectrum Sportsnet is Saturday at six o'clock, but it is also available on Blu-ray. Let's uh, quickly talk with um, uh, Jerry in South San Gabriel. Jerry, real quickly, your memory of the Olympic. Hi, Larry. Uh, glad, uh, glad to uh, contribute. I used to be a, pro- a professor at, at Chicano Studies at Cal State L.A. Yeah. This was in the 70s. And uh, one of my students was a boxer named uh, Mondo Ramos. Mondo Ramos was your student. Wow. Yeah, remember? And uh, so he gave me some tickets to go see his fight, see him fight. And I, and I didn't, frankly, I, I wasn't aware of how, how good he was. So yeah. I went, took my brother-in-law, and we sat there and the in the Olympic Auditorium, uh, uh, it, w- it was fantastic. I felt so proud that, hey, that's my student up there. I felt like standing up and telling everybody. You had a star in your class. Jerry, thank you for sharing that. Uh, Mike in Las Vegas joining us. Uh, Mike, uh, please share with us your experience real briefly. We've got like 30 seconds. Thank you, Larry. Hey, in 1962, I went saw the Destroyer versus Mr. Moto live at the Olympic Auditorium. I was absolutely blown away by everything about wrestling and the Olympics. I became a wrestling announcer for over 20 years. Wow. And in 1999, I filmed a movie called Ready to Rumble, and the location was the Olympic Auditorium all those years later. Thank you. Mike. Oh, I love it. What a wonderful call to end on. Mike, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Great to have you with us. Steve Dubrow, congratulations on the film. For many of us, just wonderful to, to get a much bigger view of the Olympic Auditorium. Thank you so much. Thanks a lot. Larry. The documentary 18th and Grand, The Olympic Auditorium Story. It's so good to have you with us on Air Talk. What a fun segment that was to conclude the last hour as we remembered the 
Olympic Auditorium. Coming up later this hour, James Cameron, the writer-director of Avatar uh, and the sequel that's out now in theaters. Also want to remind you, 4.30 this afternoon, KPCC will bring you NPR's live coverage of Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's speech to a joint session of Congress. It's 4.30 this afternoon, and we'll have special NPR analysis as well. Uh, quite a daring visit by the Ukrainian president to Washington. He's going to be visiting with President Biden around midday our time and then making that uh, address to a joint session of Congress. 4.30 our time, live NPR coverage during All Things Considered right here on KPCC. But we begin the hour looking at what's happening with U.S. immigration policy and what was scheduled today to be the expiration of what's known as Title 42 was established during uh, the height of the pandemic, allowing the U.S. government to turn away people seeking asylum without having an asylum hearing conducted for them. They'd be turned back to Mexico. Uh, John Roberts, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, has temporarily stayed the end of Title 42. There are multiple legal challenges that are going on right now. And to help us understand where we are, because frankly, I'm finding it a bit confusing, is Los Angeles Times staff writer covering immigration, Hamed Ali, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Aliyah uh, Aziz. Uh, thank you so much, Ahmed, for joining us. Um, so where are we at right now with Title 42 that was scheduled to expire today? Yeah, right now we're waiting for the Supreme Court to weigh in uh, and decide whether or not uh, they will uh, grant a long stay as requested by 19 GOP states uh, who really want Title 42 to continue for the time being. Uh, the government has said the the Supreme Court should deny the stay, and uh, they believe, you know, that, that ultimately Title 42 should lift its outlived its uh, its use and uh, necessary to to move on to normal course of business. So at this point, everybody in the government, like you and me, are waiting for the Supreme Court to to weigh in on this holiday week to see whether or not Title 42 will continue in the near future. If it doesn't continue, um, we understand that there are thousands of people who are in Mexico waiting to apply for asylum in the United States. Obviously, there isn't a court system large enough to expedite that. So how is the Biden administration expected to cope with that? Well, you know, this administration uh, has said that they're going to be pooling uh, resources. They're going to be sending, you know, more uh, resources toward the border, you know, more agents, more USCIS USCIS officers uh, to the border. Uh, They have policies planned uh, to deal with this situation, potentially even uh, deterrent policies to maybe perhaps uh, limit uh, asylum that are still being worked on as we speak. Uh, but ultimately, they, they recognize that you know, there's going to be an increase of sorts in unlawful, uh, as they say, crossings. And as confusing as this whole situation is for us, uh, we can only imagine how confusing and how stressful this must be for people in Mexico who have uh, been waiting 
for a couple of years now to, to try to get access to asylum in the U.S. So there's a lot of uncertainty right now, and that's really not a position the government loves to be in. We're talking with Hamed Ali Aziz, who's staff writer covering immigration for the Los Angeles Times. Also with us, Politico White House reporter Maya Ward. Maya, thank you very much. Um, is there a conflicted sentiment within the Biden administration over how best to deal with the potential uh, sunset of Title 42? That is definitely the million dollar question. <laughs> you have already laid out both of you. I mean, just the confusion around all of this. And I think it's really sensed in some of the messaging coming out of the administration. And I think why this question is so challenging to answer is because you're seeing this contradiction in words versus actions. I mean, think about the talk talks um, that you were just discussing to revive something like a transit ban model um, upon the end of another Trump era policy like Title 42. I mean, earlier this year when it was ordered that the administration must keep Title 42 in place, we reported that there was relief inside the West Wing among some officials. And then there's, you know, all of what's going down in the courts. I mean, they've appealed the D.C. judge's order that required Title 42 to wind down because federal authorities say they want to preserve the ability to use these health-related powers in the future when the situation merits it. Yet last night, as you've already gone over, they've asked the Supreme Court to leave this order in place and to block the GOP state's attempts to prevent um, this from going forward. I mean, this has just been going on since the campaign trail. You know, the promises for reform to rid the country of these Trump immigration policies. Yet two years in, this battle is still going on. And it's really difficult to read where the administration stands on such a politically challenging issue for this White House. Well, yeah, and I was wondering, Maya, if at if, you know, one time, uh, sort of on on one hand, um, the Biden administration, um, you know, wants to get rid of Title 42, wants to have the cases of migrants, um, you know, dealt with uh, and asylum uh, be considered for them. But on the other hand, Title 42 gave them the ability to put this off and not have to deal with a deluge of, of asylum speakers. And so I wonder if that's led to to a, a bit of a conflicted feeling about something that at least they were they were saying is you know was a negative trump era vestige right and i i think that it speaks to kind of what i just said the fact that this is such an incredibly challenging issue politically for this white house and honestly not just this white house i mean this has been going on for Years through multiple presidencies, Congress hasn't acted and from, you know, what it seems right now doesn't plan to. And I was talking to a former Biden administration official earlier this week who worked on immigration policy. And the way this person put it was that, you know, Biden officials have faced the challenging reality of governing under the current immigration system. And, you know, this person believes that the administration is putting in the work that could make a difference in the long term, you know, working with other countries in the region, working on speeding up the asylum processing system. But that tension point you're hitting there, I mean, right now, the current situation at the border, the reality is there's no quick fix and it's chaos. And I think that reality is reflected 
in that conflicting messaging we're hearing from the administration. We're talking with Politico White House reporter Maya Ward, also with us, professor at Santa Clara University School of Law, Pradeepan Gulasekram. Deep, it's good to have you with us again um, as a constitutional and immigration law specialist. Your thoughts on, on sort of what avenues are available to the current administration going forward? Well, thank you for having me, Larry. Going forward, first of all, the administration has to wait to see what the Supreme Court is going to say. When the Supreme Court takes these sorts of um, questions on what is known as the shadow docket and issues a procedural type of ruling as it did yesterday, a stay of the lower court hearing, it's not really clear when the Supreme Court is going to give an answer. It has no deadline, perhaps in today, perhaps in the next week. It could be months before we know what the Supreme Court wants to do with it. And in the meantime, there's going to be a stay uh, of the lower court ruling. And so Title 42 will remain uh, in effect. There is always the option, um, and I think this highlights the the larger problem here, uh, that Congress could attempt to solve the problem of the border by enacting comprehensive immigration reform. But short of that, the the current administration will not be able to implement normal immigration procedures while this stay is in effect. Well, and, and there's sort of there's the humanitarian issue here, of course. And and then there's the political matter that the administration has to deal with because um if there's no Title 42 and all the migrants are coming in applying for asylum, you have huge numbers of people who are staying in the United States. You know, speak to the challenge for the Biden administration politically deep. Right. Well, that is a challenge, of course, for the Biden administration, the the tens of thousands of people who uh, are seeking humanitarian relief in the United States. But that is not just a challenge of the Biden administration. This was a challenge of the Biden administration, of the Trump administration, of the Obama administration, of the Bush administration before that. This is an ongoing problem Mm -hmm. that the United States is refusing to deal with at the level of Congress and, and legislation. What Title 42 allows the federal government to do in the Trump era was to use public health authorities as a cover for large-scale immigration uh, change and really just to block the border from anybody seeking asylum. Uh, but just articulating that should uh, should tell you why it's a problematic use, right? Yeah. That this is a, an order and authority used for public health types of concerns. For example, if there's an Ebola outbreak and there needs to be an immediate public health response to that from the immigration or admission side. It's not intended. This is not a Band-Aid that can be used to stop a a dam from bursting. Um, And so there are larger structural concerns that just require more significant federal attention. We're talking with Professor Deep Gulasekram, Santa Clara University School of Law, my award political White House reporter with us. And from the L.A. Times, a staff writer covering immigration, Hamed Ali Aziz. Uh, Hamed, I wanted to ask you about um, the concerns I'm sure that the administration has, not just about the tens of thousands of people that are waiting in Mexico to have their cases considered for asylum, but But if that process restarts, what that means for people who would come from countries like Venezuela and places in Central America and and elsewhere, um, and and what is the thought about the, the types of numbers that immigration officials might be dealing with? 
Yeah, I mean, we've seen estimates, and again, these are estimates of potentially you know, 12,000 uh, migrants crossing a day. But what the Biden administration is dealing with is not only you know, these historical trends of Central Americans uh, crossing the border, but we've seen increasing numbers of Venezuelans, Cubans, and Nicaraguans uh, crossing the border in high numbers. And that's a major challenge for this administration because they don't have strong relations with those countries. So it makes it quite difficult for them to deport these uh, three nationalities, uh, individuals from these three countries back to their home countries. So the administration has really relied on Mexico, as, as many administrations have, to handle their immigration issues and has worked with Mexico to try to turn back Venezuelans at the border. Um, the Biden administration has said publicly that they're going to continue to talk to Mexico about, even in a post-Title 42 world, turning back Venezuelans at the border to Mexico. So you see uh, this administration uh, kind of being confronted with these new trends, these increasing numbers, uh, with, with you know, reliance on deterrence policies, like many administrations before, you know, including the Trump administration. And, Ahmed, is, is there any thought that um, if, if things get really difficult at the border, that that could actually um, spur Congress to some sort of, of immigration policy that would, would deal with this? Or, or is the thought that that's a non-starter given the close margins in the House and Senate? Look, I mean, I think at this point, it is hard to say that Congress at any point is going to step in and make a change. I think, you know, we've seen time and again these uh, deals floated, uh, bipartisan deals that, uh, you know, offer some, uh, you know, uh, compromises on both sides and seem to have momentum, and they ultimately always get killed. I mean, you look back to the time during the Trump administration when, there was an idea of potentially offering a pathway to citizenship for people who had uh, had DACA, you know, a really popular program in the U.S. And again, that that uh, deal was also killed. So it's it really feels far away, and uh, this is really the challenge. I mean, Secretary DHS Secretary Mayorkas, Alejandro Mayorkas, has said repeatedly that the only way to really handle this is to try to figure out some sort of uh, comprehensive immigration reform. But absent that, you know, uh, we're kind of left with the system we have. All right. Uh, Hamed, thanks so much. That's Hamed uh, Ali Aziz, who is L.A. Times staff writer covering immigration. My award political White House reporter, I I know we're having you on to talk about the immigration uh, issues in Title 42, but uh, President Zelensky of Ukraine is arriving today to meet with the president and then address a joint session of Congress. Can you just briefly give us a sense of sort of um, the anticipation over this very high security and somewhat risky event. Yeah, I mean, it is a an incredibly important, I mean, historic day in Washington. I mean, yesterday when it was announced, I mean, there was even, as reporters were going to confirm, you know, him coming to Washington, there was frustration about the leaks just because of the high security situation. Um, but it's going to be very closely watched. Um, the president, they are expected to meet today and then have a joint press conference. And Zelensky is only going to be on the ground for a few hours in the U.S. Um, He's going to go over to Congress, have meetings with leaders, 
um, and have a joint meeting with members of Congress as well. So it is, to say the least, a very busy day in Washington. I'll bet, I'll bet. Maya, thank you very much. Really appreciate your being with us. Maya Ward, White House reporter for Politico. And our thanks to frequent air talk guest on immigration topics, Professor Deep Gulasekram, Santa Clara University. Deep, thank you as always. We appreciate it. Good to talk with you. It's air talk on KPCC. And speaking of those two major events with Ukrainian President Zelensky, we'll be offering them to you live right here on KPCC. That joint news conference that my award was just talking about is at 1.30 our time. We'll have live coverage of that right here on KPCC. And then that uh, speech that he makes to a joint session of Congress, that's at 4.30. We'll have NPR live coverage of that event as well. So stay with KPCC all day. And I remind you, with the KPCC app, which is easy to download, you can use your phone as a radio. So wherever you're going to be, if you want to hear the news conference at 1.30 or Zelensky's speech at 4.30, just use your earbuds, listen on the KPCC app, and it's with you wherever you go. You're listening to Air Talk on KPCC. Coming up, you know that advice about drinking eight glasses of water a day? We'll find out if that's a bunch of bunk or there's anything to it when we come back in just one minute. been taken as gospel eight glasses of water a day are what we all need to remain healthy no caffeinated beverages they don't count coffee tea sodas nope that doesn't count as a glass of water um and um, you don't take into account food either it's just eight glasses of water a day to be a healthy person well where did that advice come from and does it hold water joining us to talk about that is co-author of a new study looking at water consumption herman Ponser is a professor of evolutionary anthropology and global health at duke university he's the author of the book burn which busts myths about metabolism he's the co-author of this study on the eight glass a day recommendation professor ponzer great to have you with us today where did this advice originate Oh, so good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. Um, you know, this idea that you have to have eight glasses of water a day, it starts with some really kind of pioneering work done in the, in the 40s and 50s uh, to try to track how much water our bodies need. And then it was sort of, you know, not, not a very in-depth study at the time. And then it kind of became, it grew into this larger-than-life dogma that we've all been hit over the head with for the past, I don't know, a few decades, about eight glasses of water. And it's based largely on um, sort of asking people what, what they drink and kind of going based on surveys now. That, that's what most of the data these days is based on. Well, and, and the study you do is, is particularly large. Share with us the breadth of the study that you did, uh, not just in numbers, but geographically. That's right. So we had the first time that we, a bunch of labs, uh, about a dozen, a dozen labs internationally pulled all of our data using this, uh, sort of state of the art method that, that tracks the water that your body uses using isotopes. So it's a really, it's a really accurate, precise way to measure it. And nobody had done it at this scale before. We had over 5,000 people measured from over two dozen countries 
everybody from, you know, folks who are farming or even hunting and gathering to people in, in cities uh, working desk jobs. So it was a really broad snapshot of what humans, the human body needs in terms of water that comes in and water that goes out every day. Um, and yeah, we, we sort of poked some holes in what we thought we knew uh, based on the survey data that has had been normed. Well, and and the eight glasses of water always seemed kind of weird to me because people live in such different climates, uh, people's jobs. You have people that are out, you know, working outside all day, sweating profusely. Their needs, of course, are going to be completely different than someone who, say, is an office worker in a climate controlled area. People's body size is very different. The types of food that they eat and and how that relates to it. So uh, it just it always seemed kind of strange to me. I'm, I'm glad to see this finally debunked yeah yeah you know it was one of these things that you kind of knew it couldn't be true if you look at the guidelines for water needs for example right now that are based again on just asking people what they how much water they drank um you'll find that oh body size doesn't seem to matter right according to the guidelines doesn't matter if you're a a really big person or really small person um they'll tell you you need, need the same amount of water uh you know activity level isn't really factored in there climate and we know all these things kind of must matter. And we just didn't have any good studies of this until I think this study uh, is the first to really do it comprehensively. And just like you say, you know, if you're outside working in the heat all day, you need more water. Of course, that makes sense. If you're a bigger person, you've got a bigger system. We, you know, we are water-based systems or everything that your body does is sort of water-based chemistry, right? And so we, if you're a bigger system, you need more water. Um, your diet matters. A lot of the, the eight glasses of water um, dogma didn't factor in the water that you get from food, right? It, it's, um, you know, you get a lot of the water from your food every day. Uh, and if you're, it, once you factor that in, you don't need, you know, most of us don't need that, those eight glasses of water. Um, and for that matter, you don't, it doesn't have to be water, right? <laughs> your coffee counts too. And so does, you know, not that you should, we're not promoting people to go out and drink you know, sodas and stuff like that. But that all does count. That all counts as water that you're you're bringing in. Not that it's advised you be be drinking sodas, as you say, but it's still offering hydration. What about the argument, though, Professor, that caffeinated drinks, particularly coffee or caffeinated tea, it works as a diuretic, so it doesn't really hydrate you? So that's true, but not completely right. So it's, it's true that it, you know, the caffeine has a diuretic effect that makes you go to the bathroom. And so you lose some water that way, but that doesn't, um, counteract the water that you get from you know, that's in the coffee already. So unless you're drinking, you know, really particularly high caffeine beverages and that's all you drink, um, you're, you're getting more water than you'll lose from the diuretic effect. We're talking with a professor at Duke University, Herman Ponser. He's co-author of this study about water consumption. He's professor of evolutionary anthropology and global health. His book is Burn, that busts myths about metabolism. And he's the co-author of this study just published in the journal Science, which uh, through this findings of, of um, five to 6,000 people uh, around the world uh, found that most healthy adults don't need to worry about drinking eight cups of water a day. If you have questions for the professor, we're at 866-893-KPECC, 866-893-5722. You can also email us at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. Now, presumably, there's no harm with drinking eight glasses or more of water a day, is there, Professor? 
No, that's right. You know, our bodies are really good at keeping our, our water levels, you know, in a really healthy range. So your kidneys just get rid of that extra water if you drink too much. Uh, so there's no, no problem with, with drinking eight cups of water. Certainly, and if you feel better when you do that, by all means, go for it. Um, it's more to think about, you know, what do we need to recommend for people to drink? What do we need to, to ensure they're getting? Um, you know, that, that's why we want to have this understanding so that we can kind of plan our nutrition uh, programs better. All right. Cassius in Whittier, good to have you with us on Air Talk. Hey, good morning, guys. Morning. Um, I'm not sure if you mentioned this while I was talking to Screener, but I just, I just kind of learned recently that it's so ironic that it's actually really easy to dehydrate the human body by drinking too much water because like hydration is really, what it really means is like a proper balance of electrolytes to, to compared to fluids in the body. And, and, and so you're saying too much water, you think, and throw that, throw that off um, with your salt yeah. and electrolyte balance. Professor Ponser, is, is that true? That's right. In extreme cases now, most people aren't going to have this problem. Uh, but what he's talking about is hyponatremia. It's not enough salt in your blood, essentially. And that's right. It's actually dangerous to overconsume if you take it to the extreme. Um, but one place we see this, for example, is there have been reported cases, people running marathons, for example, and they're chugging water and chugging water because they're worried, worried about dehydration. And actually what happens is because they're sweating out their salts and they're replacing it with just regular water, uh, they get their electrolyte balance out of whack and they can, you know, they can have really big health problems that way from not enough salt and essentially too much water. So that's right. Having too much water can be a problem if it's at that sort of extreme level. Cassius, thanks very much. So when I was a kid, I remember um, when we go to the Colorado River, or, you know, go to the desert and be really active and it's, you know, it's 115 degrees or whatever, they'd give us salt tablets. Is that something yeah. that, and then later on I heard, well, that's, you know, that's ridiculous. Um, so, I mean, is there any value in that for the extreme circumstances? Sure, because, you know, you're losing salt with the sweat that you lose and you're not, you know, in a really hot, dry environment. You might not even realize how much you're sweating. But, of course, you're sweating a lot. You can sweat an hour, you know, a liter an hour if you're really active in, in the heat. Um, so you're losing salt that way. And if you're replacing it with regular water, tap water, there's no salt in that. But again, you get that electrolyte imbalance. And so salt tablets aren't a bad idea. Um, you know, this is where Gatorade came from. <laughs> all those sports drinks that revolution yeah. is all based on this understanding that actually, you know, just water by itself, if you're super active in the heat, uh, isn't as good as water with a little bit of salt. So that's, that's where that's from. That, that is like, makes good sense uh, in terms of our physiology. All right. Very good. Uh, Grayson Culver City says, what about drinking distilled versus tap or spring bottled water? Does that have an mm. effect, different effect on hydration? I'm glad you brought this up because there's so much uh, marketing and, you know, I don't know what else to call it, superstition around what kind of water is safe. You know, the very large majority of us in this country, very thankfully, have safe water to drink coming right out of our taps. And so there's no reason that you should go out and buy bottled water if the water coming out of your taps is, is safe. And for most of us, it is. Of course, if it's not, that's another problem. Um 
But right, we don't need to be worried about, oh, is it this kind of water? Is it isotonic? Is it alkaline water, which is the world's biggest, <laughs> that's the world's biggest marketing scam currently, is alkaline water. Uh, your body actually does an incredible job keeping your acid base balance in a really narrow range. Alkaline water doesn't fix that. Um, anyway, <laughs> uh, thanks for bringing that up. Any water's fine as long as, you know, it's, it's safe and, and healthy to drink. I've never consumed it, but one of the downsides of distilled water, I understand, is just it doesn't taste very good because it, it's all the minerals have been removed. So we're used to sort of the, you know, the flavor profile of water that has minerals in it. Well, that's right. And, you know, and I think there's also a larger societal issue here. And, you know, folks in Southern California are very aware um, of the larger, you know, infrastructure around water and how much energy we put in to getting water. And we add the energy and, and the other materials to that to bottle it or distill it or all those things. You're just making those problems. You're just exaggerating them. So, you know, the water coming out of your tap, if it's safe to drink, which for most of us it is, that's just fine. We're talking with Herman Ponser, who's co-author of a new study published in the journal Science that found after extensive research, most healthy adults don't need to worry about drinking uh, eight glasses of water a day. Obviously, hydration is important. You don't want to be dehydrated. Professor Ponser at Duke University, professor of evolutionary anthropology and global health. We're getting tight on time, professor. But um, so what is the best you know, sort of rule of thumb? here for water consumption how much should we drink <laughs> well you know some people it will be that eight glasses of water if you're a big bigger person especially if you're active in the heat that might be what you need um but for the rest of us and even for those folks if you listen to your body if you drink when you're thirsty you're going to be fine uh and you don't need to be you know, bullied into drinking two uh, quarts of water every day if you don't feel like you need that if if that doesn't feel good to you to drink all that water your body is probably telling you you don't need quite that much so it's it's kind of a self-regulating thing when you're thirsty drink (laughs) yeah i mean it's not so silly but you know we've been uh our if you go back 300 million years ago when animals first started getting out of the water and on the land they had a problem to solve which is you're a water-based thing and all of a sudden you're on land in a dry environment and so there's really ancient very good uh, mechanisms from thirst to our yeah. kidneys to all of our physiology to make sure that we don't run out of water. And if we just listen to those, we'll be fine. Thank you, Professor. Great to have you with us today. We really appreciate you sharing your research. Oh, thanks so much. Thank you, Professor Herman Ponzer of Duke University. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Coming up, we'll talk with James Cameron, our John Horn in conversation with the writer-director about his new Avatar sequel, also, just want to remind you, two big events with Ukrainian President Zelensky in Washington today for a whirlwind trip there for just a few hours. He'll be in a joint news conference with President Biden, live coverage right here at 1.30 this afternoon. Then President Zelensky addresses a joint session of Congress at 4.30 this afternoon, live on KPCC. It's Air Talk on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. It's been 13 years since James Cameron's Avatar opened in theaters, went on to become the highest grossing movie of all time. And the long delayed sequel, Avatar The Way of Water, is now out in theaters. The movie was made through what's called performance capture. An array of cameras record the body and facial movements of the actors. They are then converted into lifelike computer animated characters. 
characters. Our John Horn talked with James Cameron last week. And we shared that conversation. I'm going to start with something that I would say is the prequel to Avatar, The Way of Water. And no, it's not the first Avatar. Instead, it is this. You see the reticulation inside this thing? Look at that. Oh. I have no idea what that is. That's what I love about this stuff. Every single dive, you're going to see something you've never seen before. And you might even see something that nobody's ever seen before. That's that's Aliens of the Deep, and I think this is me looking at what we nicknamed the Space Bagel. It is it uh, is a, which, yeah, it's like a deep-sea jellyfish. It yeah, looks it was like, about two meters across, and it's in the jellyfish family. Uh, it's been seen once before in the Pacific, but we were in the Atlantic, so we don't know if it's the same species or not. It might have been a new species. But to me, it feels like it's character research and development for the Absolutely. new Avatar film. That And even yeah. some of the mechanized combat machines in the new film look like some of the crabs you brought up to the surface <laughs> uh, from very deep below. And I'm wondering, is well, there a connection between all of that deep sea exploration that you've done and what we see in this film? That particular creature is called Deepstaria enigmata, like the enigma, right? And uh, so I had that in the back of my mind when, when we were designing uh, what we call the gill mantle, which is the kind of angel wings that they use, the kind of Navi scuba system, you know, in the film. Um, so, yes, it was a combination of deep stuff and just the shallowest, most, uh, you know, most of the beauty, most of the biomass, most of the biodiversity is up near the top of the, you know, what we call the water column, which people call water. Uh, you know, but, uh, you know, the coral reefs and some of the best dives I've ever had were in 15, 20, 25 feet of water, which is nothing when you're in a sub heading for the Challenger Deep, you know, seven miles down. So it's really, it was just everything I've, I've taken in and observed across my entire diving life, which is at this point 52 years, over half a century of, of diving. And I, I always get into the water with this anticipation that, I'm either going to see something I haven't seen before. I might even conceivably see something that no one's ever seen before, right? Like I say in the film, but there's also just this exhilaration that I'm going to, I'm going to be feeding what's important to me kind of spiritually. If, if you even want to get onto that kind of level, that psychological level, because I could just be in a school of fish or a school of sharks and just Zen out. And, man, you really just feel connected with nature. And not even with nature as it stands right now, but with nature back through time. It's almost a fourth, four-dimensional experience because you think, this has been around so much longer than us. And our little kind of fart in a frying pan of civilization is nothing compared to deep time. It feels a lot like that's the middle third of the movie, which is largely set underwater. And that's where a reef-dwelling clan live in some sort of oceanic utopia. And as I was watching the film, I almost didn't want to leave there, even if there's a larger story that's a little bit beyond the uh, reef that had to be completed. And did you feel the same way? Because it is a world that we're immersed in that we've never seen before, and it's not essential to the narrative it, there's a lot of story in there but it feels like we're just in this world that i guess i didn't want to leave and i wonder if you didn't want to leave it either it was actually one of the one of the major kind of discussion points around editing the film you know and i knew structurally i was basically doing the same thing as titanic and the same thing as avatar which is have this soft middle act where you're taking your time and you're enjoying 
the development, a bit of character development. It's very scenic. And then all the hard yards come in, in Act 3. Act 1 is set up. So Act 2 and all three of those films requires a kind of um, consensus amnesia. And we just stop and smell the roses and enjoy where we are right now. And all three of those films work exactly the same way. And I had the same argument on all three films. Uh, with, with, with Disney, it was a much softer argument than it was with Fox because they were extremely supportive and they wanted to see it my way. But there was this consensus exactly where everybody in the test cards said the movie slows down is exactly where everybody in the test card says we liked it the most. But no one at the, at the studio could make the cognitive leap that it was because it slowed down. And I had the same argument on the first Avatar. When they start flying around, we're just in these kind of beautiful long montages of, of flying and falling in love and beautiful scenery. It's like, well, let's get through that. Let's get through that. Let's get the, you know, let's get the Jeopardy story going again and let's not hang around. I said, no, we want to hang around. People will come back again to hang around. I remember meeting with you several times when you were working on the first Avatar, and to me, the technology then was astounding. But it's obviously evolved quite a bit since then. Rather than get into the technical details, what have those advances meant to you in terms of uh, your ability to tell a story? Well, you know, speaking as a writer, I, you know, I propose dialogue, I propose scenes, but it's all about how the actors execute it. It's all about what the actors bring to it, the truth of their characters, what they make you feel. I think ultimately at the end of the day, and I'm, I'm, I'm really seeing this more and more as I, as, I, as I do more work, it's all about how you feel. It's not about what you're thinking. You know, what you're thinking is part of it, but how you're feeling is the most important thing. And how you feel, especially as you get into the third act and, and it progresses. So the most important uh, technical advancements for me were not about the water and figuring out how to shoot underwater and all that sort of thing, because we knew that was going to be our challenge, and we knew we had to do that. It was about the refinement of that performance capture process so that nothing was lost. You know, Jake says nothing is lost, but our mantra was nothing is lost from the actors. I wanted to be able to look the actors in the eye and say be a subtle and internal as you want, as you would be in real life. You know, don't think about having to act for the back row of a live theater audience, for example. It's not about amplification. It's actually about every single thing you do is scrutinized as if it were a close-up. So when we come to do a close-up, trust the process. And I wanted to be able to say that to them and then deliver. You know, so we spent a lot of, a lot of time and energy, tens of millions of dollars, improving the facial performance and body performance, hand performance. Uh, you know, we call it sort of the pipeline or the process or the algorithm, but improving that. And I'm very, very happy with the results. I look at what Sam and Zoe did and Sigourney, Stephen Lang. It's just all there. It's just all there. And you feel these people, you know. It, it's like it's such a weird thing to be doing a movie in such a circuitous way to get back to a simple thing that you could do on camera. It, we're, it's, we, go, we go the long way around to get back to zero, except that it's zero, one plane of existence up, where these are impossible characters that couldn't be done with makeup. They're luminous, they're attractive. By luminous, I mean their eyes, they draw you in. They're, they're dreamlike. 
And the more real they look, the more dreamlike it becomes because it's it is a um, I guess I'd call it a cognitive dissonance that says what I'm looking at is impossible, but it looks so real. I must be dreaming. As was the case in the first Avatar film, the new movie has a variety of messages about stewardship, stewardship of the planet and stewardship of the natural world. Without giving anything away, there's a scene that is essentially Pandora's equivalent of shark fin soup. We're going to kill yes. an entire animal just to get this tiny piece and we'll throw everything else away. It's a metaphor for, for shark fin soup and just for our general kind of the, 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 the havoc that we wreak to extract things. You know, that little bit of gold that you extract in a gold mine and cause vast, you know, eco devastation downstream with mine tailings and effluent and so on. It's happening in the Amazon. I mean, that's a metaphor for so many things around the world. And it's also a metaphor for how First Nations people viewed, you know, the colonizers. They came across and devastated the buffalo, devastated the forests and so on. For what? You know, for things that, that they didn't value. It didn't make sense to them. The value, it's a clash of value systems, right? You're listening to our John Horn in conversation with writer, director, and producer of Avatar The Way of Water, James Cameron. More of their conversation on Air Talk in just a moment. It's Air Talk on KPCC. I'm Larry Mantle. Let's return to John Horn's conversation with James Cameron about Avatar The Way of Water. So much has changed in the theatrical world since the first film came out. Um, and there's obviously a lot riding on this film. The LA Times quoted a, a theater chain the other day saying, this movie will make or break our fourth quarter. But I'm wondering just in terms of how audiences experience or don't experience films right now, you know, the big hits are doing okay. There's nothing else at the box office. There's no middle. There's no bottom. And how do you react to that as somebody who I suspect, like me, loves seeing movies in a theater that that model has changed to only favor movies like Wakanda Forever, Top Gun, and I suspect your film? What's your take on the whole business right now? I think we're in an interesting time. It's not necessarily all bad. I think it's been bad, obviously, for theaters. It's the first. I said this to Adam Aaron, the, the head of, of uh, AMC, and this was back when the pandemic first happened. I said, this is the first true existential threat to the business that we love. Because, you know, so many things had, had come along historically, starting with television. And I remember people were pronouncing cinema dead back in the, you know, in the early 60s. And then again, uh, with VHS and beta and then VOD and Blu-ray, you name it. There were so many times that cinema was sort of pronounced dead and it just kept zombieing on just fine, you know. And the first real existential threat was the pandemic because the, the one thing that we needed for cinema was the ability to gather in one place. And the pandemic switched that off right away. So it was no longer about these other ideas of, of, of oh, well, you know, the cinema represents a better picture, a bigger screen. Well, people can have big screens and beautiful pictures and good sound systems at home. The fundamental difference was that ability to gather, to get up and go out and gather. And when that was taken away, all of a sudden I thought, this could be it, guys. But I, and I started to give a lot of thought to, you know, what is the fundamental difference? And I, I think that all these arguments that everyone's always used about you want to go have a communal experience. I think if you want a communal experience, go to church and sing with the choir. 
sing. And that's a communal experience. When you go to a movie theater, there's always somebody annoying around you, munching their popcorn too loud, rattling their stuff, talking to their friends, farting, coughing, whatever it is. It's like you can keep your communal experience. But what that, what that group experience does is it creates a social contract which says the movie will not stop for you. And the second you take the remote out of somebody's hands, you've just created a different psychological relationship between the viewer and the art. Because what, what you, you are now selecting for when you get, get up out of your house and you go out in the cold in the winter storm and you pay for your parking and you go into the theater, it's to subject yourself willingly to an unbroken, highly focused experience. In a highly cluttered, multitasking, multi-screen world, it's our meditation. One of the other things that's happened over the last couple of years is there's been a reckoning in Hollywood and culture more broadly uh, about representation, about how women are treating pledges to change, the fact that women and people of color get fewer opportunities in front of and behind the camera. Sure. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on your responsibility as a successful white male filmmaker to help change things and bring about change, even in the way that you cast a film or, yeah, or hire yeah. department heads. You know, we, we cast a number of people of color from diverse backgrounds and different language groups in the first avatar and carrying on in, into the to the second one and, and downstream. That's something I've always cared about. Uh, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to work with uh, my fellow showrunner on, on Dark Angel back in 1999 and, and 2000. And we had a very diverse cast well before our time. And we, we had a, a Latinx lead in Jessica Alba hanging a series, a major series, an expensive series for its time on, you know, uh, a young Latin female was a big deal. I mean, I don't want to say it was as big a deal as Uhura in Star Trek, but I think it was a big deal. And um, we we're trying to show a different kind of future, a future that was of the real the real people, you know, not this kind of made up, made up, you know, kind of Hollywood world, which we weren't interested in. So, you know, that was also a motif for us when we cast, we cast Avatar. But I also acknowledge that, you know, I'm an old white male. And the, and the, one, the one thing that has been a bit of an epiphany for, for me over the last couple of years is I don't get to explain myself if somebody has a problem with the choices that I've made artistically. I have to sit and listen because the wounded party is never wrong. If that's how they feel after all that, that they've been through historically, I, I don't get to explain my intention. I just have to sit and listen and try to do it better. What was the biggest creative challenge in making this film? I would say the blank page, right? We just did the highest grossing film in history. Now I'm sitting there. Day one of the writing process looks like this. The next big challenge was figuring out how to shoot the water. Uh, performance capture underwater had never been done in water. And then the next challenge after that was, okay, we cracked the code on that. Now how do we teach the actors to be able to do all that? I'm going to ask you this last question, Jim, because I know you've got other people to talk to. It's more a statement than it is a question, and the statement is wonder and how important wonder is as a filmmaker uh, and, as an, and to an audience. I think it's more critical to an audience than, than most people in the business give credence to. It's a little bit been my stock in trade, especially with these two Avatar movies. It's very important to me in my life. 
You know, I think what an artist does is they share something they feel strongly about or some perception that they think might be kind of unique or it could be shared in a unique way, right? So I've been thinking a lot about what art is and how it engages and what it's really all about in our, in our world. But, you know, I go to the bottom of the ocean, I have a sense of wonder. I swim around on a, in a shallow scuba dive or free dive, I have a sense of wonder, a sense of curiosity. It deeply satisfies me, not necessarily to know what every, every animal is on the reef, but to see the complexity and enjoy what I think of as nature's imagination. You know, so we get the best artists in the world together and we can't compete with nature's imagination. In fact, we go to nature's imagination for things that we'll use to, to inspire us. So wonder is probably the most important driving factor in my life. Just the wonder at our existence, the wonder at our consciousness, the wonder at our capability as these kind of amazing, creative, often highly curmudgeonly kind of chimps that we are. You know, I wonder at that every single day. Um, and I wonder at the, at the universe, you know, and I, I always will as long as, as long as I draw breath. So the question is, how do you, how do you get that feeling? How can you, how can you transform? Fur that feeling as an artist to an audience, you know, through music, through design, through 3D, experientially pulling out all the stops. You know, if I could do the, the, the Krell version of perfect creation, you know, and just immerse people in a Matrix-like version of an Avatar movie, I would do that. We don't know how to do that yet, but, you know, maybe we'll figure it out someday. Maybe you'll figure it out for Avatar 3. You've got it. You've oh, got it. I don't think so. Avatar 3 is barreling okay. down the mountain. Like Avatar the 5, then. <laughs> okay, Avatar 5. That's James Cameron, writer, director, producer of Avatar The Way of Water, in conversation with our John Horn. The movie's in theaters now, and John recommends when you go see it, see it in 3D. All right, that's it for Air Talk. Thank you so much for joining us. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at 9, right here on KPCC. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.